Everybody, welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm Spencer Martin from the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. We have Andrew Vance, my co-host, back in studio. We flew him back on the private jet to get him in studio, pulled him away from his busy day of work at thebetterlab.io. Andrew, do you want to say a bit about your podcast, Choose the Hard Way, before we get going? Yeah, for sure. I can tell you that we have got Heather Jackson episode dropping Whoa. next week. Yeah, it's this is honestly, I've done a lot of interviews that... I really love the guests and what they had to say. This was a fantastic interview. Heather really shared a lot. She hasn't shared about her career to date. So please come check it out. You can find Choose the Hard Way everywhere you listen at choosethehardway.com and at Hardway Pod on social. She was she a she was like a hockey player, then a triathlete, and then now a gravel star. Is this right? Yeah. Yeah. Like Olympic yeah. caliber hockey player, then, yeah. then triathlete, then track cyclist, then triathlete then gravel now like among the best in the world at pro gravel cycling and ultra trail running like just like a phenomenal athlete and a good human being wow yeah yeah i can't wait for that episode pretty interesting career career arc there to see the say the least this is not what we're here to talk about today but i've been thinking about track cycling a lot recently i fell down this rabbit hole there's this like entire complex in boulder county of indoor soccer pitches that you go to they're very fun good resources there's like bars in them and i was thinking oh someone should be this for, for they, tracks they, they have bars in them is that what yeah, it's about? nuts like you take your kid <laughs> you take your kid to soccer <laughs> practice and you go up and there's like they call it the skybox bar and it's like an elevated bar and you can look down at the fields and watch your kids practice okay. while you're uh, getting hammered on a sunday it's it's fantastic well now i've got to ask you i don't know if when you've been back to the uh, greater Kansas City area. You know, they have a dog park there that's like that that also has a bar down on the Missouri River. Oh, that's a good idea. But where I, I'm, where will the mafia dump their bodies if it's, everyone's yeah, it's, <laughs> recreating on the river? That's, that's a good point. I don't know. But I was wondering, I was like, oh, someone should do this for track cycling. How crazy would that be? I started looking into it. Now, the, the, the owner of the complex formerly owned Boulder Indoor Cycling, which was an indoor track cycling facility in one of the same warehouses closed down in 2012 i guess it makes sense the big headwind was the fact that when it's not cold people are outside riding not inside but what why do you think track cycling has not only is it not taken off in the u.s like i have the build of a track cyclist i have a good friend and ex-teammate kevin selker who was an olympic level track cyclist and he would probably take issue with me saying i have the build of a track cyclist because that guy is jacked but let's say an endurance, like a, a scratch, not scratch race, but like a Madison or something. But it's like, I probably should have been doing that. It just seemed impossible to ever even like crack the nut of not only finding a track of figuring out how to race it. It all just seemed a little overwhelming. Like, do you feel like track cycling should be bigger here or is it just, it's never going to take yeah, I feel like it has a little bit of the pickleball problem. I discovered recently that my Samsung TV has a 24-hour-a-day pickleball channel. <laughs> I've, I've found these channels recently, too. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so so Mind-blowing. Right. So I, of course, was like, okay, let's see what's it about. What are they doing to you know make this sport huge, huge participant sport? I have to say, I did not find pickleball as a viewer of the professional level of the sport to be very interesting. I don't, I don't think it's going to fly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's the revolution series. I believe that's what it's called, right? The revolution series in the UK. 
pro track racing yeah and then there's i'm not a track expert and then they have like the champions league that, yeah, maybe that's what i'm talking about you used to be yeah. able to watch it i don't know back in the day we had this app spencer called gcm plus <laughs> and you used to be able to to go watch professional bike racing those days are gone now there is max where you can watch some of those pro races i don't think that they've got the champions league and i thought that that was quite an interesting idea they were doing a good job of starting to kind of bring to life and animate some of the personalities of professional track racing. And when I lived in LA, I used to go down to the Home Depot Center and watch pro track racing, the World Cup. I think they might have had the World Championship there one time. I, I'd have to fact check myself. It's really, really fun to watch elite level track racing in, in person. It's incredible. It's odd. super compelling. It's very easy to understand except for the points race in the Madison. Like, dude, I don't, you know, I don't know what's going on, but it looks really cool. It also looks like it would be really fun to do. I agree with you. I mean, I feel like cycling is such a gear centric sport and kind of intrinsically intensely exclusive because the you have to have so much gear in order to just like get started and get out there and compete. And track racing is, I mean, you can't even ride the bike on the street like a proper track bike with proper track wheels yeah. and tubulars and all that stuff. It's like a purpose-built machine. Then you need to have your road bike to ride on rollers to warm up. And I think what's tough about it is that like pickleball, looping back to pickleball, it's just like not that great on TV. You know, it has that like the cameras, you're just like turning your head back and forth kind of problem. So I don't know, man. Not I sure. mean, the Home Depot Center, be beautiful, beautiful velodrome. I guess the problem is, I mean, how many of those are there in the U.S.? I know there's the one in L.A., Home Depot. Yeah. T-Town in Pennsylvania, but that's outside. Right. There might be one in Wisconsin. There's one outdoor one in Boulder County that I believe is sitting vacant. And no, that might be it. for. Or there's there's one in the Springs, but that's I don't think that's an Olympic caliber. It's not like a, the right size for an Olympic velodrome, which is ironic because it's yeah. at the U.S. Olympic Training Center, and they sometimes put a bubble on it. There's not many tracks. Maybe it's the classic American over-engineering problem where, like in Australia, like every town has a velodrome. They're not nice velodromes, but right. they're just kind of you know asphalt with a little bit of bank on the corner. Yeah. And it's the same thing in London. They just have these these velodromes around, and you can go ride a road bike on it. Or you could ride, you know, a cheap fixie bike on it or just like a, a very simple fixie bike. And you can just do track races all the time. You can do it four or five nights a week. And then as you level up and get better and better, you get an actual track bike with the tubulars. And, you know, these things are like special engineered machines that wouldn't really be useful for anything else. Like maybe that's a little bit better. I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm staying next to, I've rented a house next to a velodrome in France for the summer. So I'm going to be in on that velodrome scene, see see what's going on, see what we're missing here in the U.S. Man, what a flex. I wish I could talk about my... But as it gets closer... Chateau rental this summer. I'm like, we'll no, it would be easy not, not doing this. <laughs> <laughs> this. This seemed like a good yeah. idea at the time. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would say, though, the I think there are a few other velodromes in the United States. I know there's a second one in Los Angeles, actually. It's in Encino. Best known for Encino, yes. Encino yeah. man, the uh, Brendan <laughs> Fraser and Polly Shore movie. I, anyone who who's a big fan of my work would know that I did interview Polly Shore, and in fact, I recently came across a photo of my parents with Polly Shore because they came to the photo shoot when I wrote the story. 
So yeah, Encino has a track as well on your right. At the Encino track, like most tracks, you can show up, spend like five bucks, 10 bucks, rent a bike. There's one in San Jose as well, actually. And I thought Boulder had had a wooden velodrome that was still in existence and and like a going concern. Am I wrong? It's a beautiful velodrome. I mean, it would be a stretch. Just call it Boulder. It's in Boulder County. It's like out east. It's hard hard to drive east to west in Boulder County. So it's in Erie, which is like a, it's a growing community. It's outdoors. It's, it is like Olympic. You could train like for the Olympics at this velodrome. It just never really made sense economically because it was expensive. It was like a country club. You had to buy, you had to like become a member of a team and the team would buy a 50,000. I'm just making these numbers up. It was very expensive though, like a 50,000 year membership. And then you had to be trained. You had to go to all these training courses to even just get on the velodrome. And it just felt like it was too many steps and it never, never quite dialed in that model. And I think it's vacant just sitting out there. Honestly, probably get demolished to make way for like houses or something. I mean, it's like a hot housing market out there. Everybody, Spencer here. I just wanted to drop in a quick correction. I said the Boulder Valley Velodrome was closed and vacant. It has actually opened just a few months ago, now under the control of a local nonprofit. It is much more affordable. You can get season passes for $500. You can take classes, certification classes for $50. So please check out the Boulder Valley Velodrome if you live in the Boulder area and want to get into track cycling. Okay. So you're saying that track racing in Boulder, it's basically Scientology. It's like an MLM religion. Yeah, it was, it was very similar to that, actually. <laughs> by, the <laughs> time, by the time you got to the highest rung, you could actually control space and time and fly a spaceship with your mind. You're, and you're making money on every new person that signs up for this Bellodrome. <laughs> you have people hey, riding underneath you. Spencer, listen to me. Everybody needs long-distance calling, okay? <laughs> and if they can get it for just 10 cents a minute on a landline, imagine what that adds up to. <laughs> I, I got like sucked into some of these when I was a teenager. Mom and dad, you understand. I'm going to be making so much money if I sign people up. But yeah, it's... I, I, yeah, and maybe that's just part of the problem. It's, it's just... It, there is... A lot, obviously, a lot of cycling interest in Boulder, but you know, people could just go ride on the roads, and it's like, oh, I don't want to get drive out to Erie and go on this velodrome, and it's outdoors. So if it's winter time, you're not riding on it, but that would be probably the optimal time to be training on the velodrome. Well, I think that's when you do old man winter, right? Like you're getting oh. ready, you're getting ready for gravel season, man. Yeah, yeah. You you can't be racing track in the winter time. You got gravel season because you yeah. can't do it in the summer. Everyone yeah. knows that get out you do old man winter you accumulate 20 to 30 pounds of of clay and mud on your bike to practice bike pushing for the next edition of unbound yeah i i believe old maybe we're like we're in the weeds i think i might be like hallucinating this i think it was a road race the first year it happened and then it just subtly shifted to a gravel race i'll have to check that though yeah i what what else are we talking about track racing but so the uae tour is going on right now if you didn't watch today's stage I had high hopes for Brandon McNulty, America, the American time trial champion. And I bring this up, I mean, Brandon, no spoilers for anyone or spoilers, spoilers. If you haven't seen UA tour and you don't want to know what happens two days ago, turn off the podcast or fast forward two minutes. McNulty, I mean, UAE was like a total mess. It's kind of an interesting climb. It's called Jabel, Jabel Jice, Jabel Jice. It's like long, like 22 kilometers long, 6% average, like the perfect almost testing, like testing training climb. It's very hard to control because if you're on the front, you're riding really hard. The people behind you are not riding that hard because they're getting a lot of draft. 
very long time to try to control the climb. So it always breaks down and there's lots of chaos. It's like slowly chaos unfolds as they go up the climb. Probably one of the most interesting early season stage racing days, in my opinion. But UAE, like the wheels totally come off. They have one guy pulling the whole climb, basically. Jay Vine, Brandon McNulty, two seconds part in the GC. McNulty looks good, and then he, he loses some time towards the top. Jay Vine's now leading the race overall. McNulty will not be able to challenge for the overall, I would guess, at this point, because the, the course doesn't suit him the rest of the way. The final climb is even harder than this. He'll probably lose time to Jay Vine again. But I bring this up, Andrew, to ask, where does Brandon McNulty land at UAE? They seem to have signed, my son is three. My son might be too old for UAE at this point. They are recruiting, right. it feels like, straight out of the cradle babies that yep. are unbelievably talented. And it feels like McNulty, I think he's 25 years old, is neither young enough nor, right. and it seems crazy to say talented because he is so talented, but if he can't win the UAE tour, it actually could be hard for him to command leadership at other races down the line. And, and I'm, I'm not pressing the panic button on McNulty's tenure at UAE, but I'm a little concerned about it. I just don't really see how he is going to find the like elbow room to find freedom to lead the team at races and not just fall into a domestic role. I see a couple of potential paths here. One is he becomes the kind of American rider who within 18 months, he's winning U.S. road nats, and then he goes to do a French team. Like, Ooh. I think that's that's one, <laughs> one possible route. Here. Yeah, Brandon, I'm sorry. I hope this doesn't happen to you, and no offense to other Americans who've taken this path, but we've seen this movie before where you're like, you're a, a high-potential American rider. Somebody comes over the top like Sylvester Stallone, and you just like you get pushed down in the hierarchy. Maybe you're not a good enough pure climber. Like you can't pull a Sep Coos pre GC Sep and just be a mountain domestique. And then it's you're just in this no man's land. Like, what are you gonna do? You're gonna go to a French team and then you're gonna get your ass kicked in most races, and then you go back to the United States at some point. That's one potential path. Another is that I don't know, he just like finds another gear at 25. It seems really crazy to me that we're saying this, that if you haven't gone to that level by 25, <laughs> no, it, it might be over, but yeah. And he did just win Volta Valenciano, which is not yeah. nothing, but yeah. But well, uh, I want to give, I want to give a third, okay, okay. third one, a third option. And then we can oh, move boy. on the third option based on what we've seen this week from just a stylistic point of view <laughs> is that he is headed in the direction of gravel. And if you haven't seen it, uh, Brandon has something of like a caterpillar type appearance on his upper lip. So he's gone the mustache route. We know that this is a signal. He's either joining the California Highway Patrol or he's going to become a gravel racer or promoter. It would be a promoter, racer, promoter. The guy is making 15 times the amount of money he made as a pro cyclist, as a gravel promoter. Uh, what about joining like EF with, with that? that? That would be a path, right? I don't know enough about Brandon's personality to know if he, he, he would need like, he'd need some kind of quirky hobby. He would need to like be raku firing pottery or something to go on EF, I think. <laughs> and it only works for like yeah. Rigo because he doesn't speak English that well. So that's kind of a quirk. Yeah, I don't know, but something like that, or he's making, he's a leathersmith on the side. Like there, there's gotta be, <laughs> gotta like have some side thing, I feel like, to join the, to join EF. It's like being in the funky bunch with Marky Mark, like Marky Mark, he's the front man. And then like, you got to have some side thing. 
<laughs> he needs the cane. Wasn't there someone in like Backstreet Boys with the cane? Do you remember this? Probably. Yeah. Uh, You're maybe deeper in the Backstreet Boys game than I am. So that's <laughs> sort of a big, big part of my life growing up. But the counterpoint to this would be Ben O'Connor, the guy who won today's stage. Really, I've never yeah. seen anything like it. His team like set up a lead out train, but it was up a mountain and he just rode away from everybody. It was, it was awesome. But he's on Decathlon Agent 2R would be kind of what you just described. Like maybe not big enough engine at a young age to be, you know, showered with money and leadership at Ineos or Jayco or an Anglo team goes to AG2R, built a pretty good little niche. For, I say niche. I think he finished fourth at the tour. That That's better than niche, but he's built like a nice little empire over there where he is their main GC leader. He's doing really well. We saw in the unbound, not the unbound, the, uh, <laughs> what was that called? Unchained documentary where he was getting some questionable medical advice and it kind of makes oh, me wonder yeah. about the whole situation yeah. at that team. But whatever is happening, it is working because the guy looks amazing. Like I kind of wonder if if McNulty could find could find a path that way because I do worry about him just I mean, what's crazy is he's not even going to the tour to be a domestique because it's so competitive to make the tour team right. at UAE that he's not gonna is he gonna go to the Giro? I mean, Tade has probably got the Giro locked down he could go help Tade maybe what about the Vuelta he's probably not going to get leadership there either so tough road for him at that team I guess if you're making a lot of money it's fine and you could always just be a domestique but I don't know I found myself troubled by by Brandon's prospects with that team this morning but I hope the best for him also we should say Matthew Riccatello finished seventh he is 21 years old on Israel I'm loading him right now yeah 21 really really good result at a really yeah. hard race. I, uh, Incredible. Hats off, Matthew. He's gotten a lot. I remember his dad, I was talking to his dad like not that long ago, maybe two years ago, and he was like talking about his son and I was like, yeah, 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 sounds great. Like, it's like, I don't know, is this guy like really going to be a world tour rider? And then fast forward two years and he's finishing the top tens of some of the biggest, hardest early season races. But that brings us to the start. I guess the start of the season is now Omloop. Have you seen this? Have you come across this this meme online where it's like, oh, 10 days to Omloop. And it's like everyone seems to be into Omloop, excited about Omloop. It's like, do you guys really tell me what happened at Omloop la- yeah. last year? Tell me what happened at Omloop two years ago. I don't believe that all you guys are really that excited about it. Frankly, it's kind of, I, I it might be like, blasphemy to say i would say kind of forgettable early season classic i'll watch it because it's on it's a race in flanders how cool is that i'm not i wouldn't put too much stock in it in fact no one's ever won omloop and flanders in the same year so and you probably actually shouldn't try to win it but what are your what are you looking forward to on saturday when the classics start i mean spencer i was watching omloop on a 14k dial-up modem on tis before (laughs) most of your (laughs) listeners had, had ever heard of it or even started teething yeah, I mean, I'm hyped on Omloop. I don't there's something about the the scarcity of of pro cycling content since the GCM plus shut down. Although now that I've figured out Max, I am pretty happy. Max's Max's sneaky good, I'd say. It's not, you know what? It's not bad. I mentioned this to you earlier in the week. I am struggling with the lack of fast forwarding and rewinding speeds. I can only, I mean, you can only get up to four X and when you want to jump around, you know, I'm missing that two fifty six X that we had with GCM plus. 
Yeah, well, just on this topic, I mean, so Max is pretty good. I'd say better than expected. They will start charging us for the BR Sport add-on. That's going to be $10 a month. I think they've 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 earned my $10 a month. Yeah, I'm going to give them 10 bucks. Yeah. The, the main here's the the two issues I have with Max, or I guess three. One, it's okay, I understand like the idea behind a super app, your company like Warner Brothers Discovery. Well, why have four apps? For cycling, one for cycling, one for prestige TV, one for news, one for movies. Let's combine them into one app. But it's like you're clicking around so much. Once you get in there with GCN, you're in. Races are right in front of you. It's like the added. It's like I'm I'm sorting through CNN to get to my cycling. That's starts. You start to wonder, like in ten years, will they start unbundling this? Like you know what we're gonna do? A dedicated cycling app. We'll call it Global Cycling Channel. (laughs) It's like we just have GCN recreated again on accident. Another thing is they don't, I, I don't know if they have a lot of the smaller stuff, like the, the Champions League, I'd forgotten that GCN was broadcasting that. I don't think that made the jump over to Max. There's like seven people devastated about that. I kind of just am sad in theory about it. I probably wouldn't watch a lot of Champions League cycling if, you know, all things being equal, but I'm, are they going to have mountain biking? That's my big question. Like, yeah, I, the, believe, I believe they are. I believe they do have World Cup mountain biking. And most importantly, they had Tour de Alps Maritime, which I know you, you know, you weren't that hyped on it. But to me, this lower level French race <laughs> was incredibly exciting this week. So I, I had a blast watching that because they had Matt Stevens commentating. And I think he's, you know, one of the best commentators in the sport. It was incredible. We're becoming, I mean, I thought the race was pretty good. I mean, there's a lot of attacking. It was wild how aggressive that race was. Great region. I was just having a little trouble holding fake focus because there was some of the sport's most talented riders in Portugal racing at the same time. But we're going to become like these nerd boys. And like, there's all these football fans who will pick the game they watch based on the announcers. I'm like, you guys are out of your minds. But now that you say that, it's like, oh, Matt Stevens, I'd watch that race. Like, I'm going to start chasing races just based on the commentator. Yeah, I don't know who the commentator he was paired with was, but she is excellent as well. I I didn't catch her name, but she's really, really outstanding. And in fact, I would watch a race just because they were calling it. And I did the typical thing I do, you know, if I'm having an extremely busy work day where I'm like, okay, I just want to watch the last 10K or 20K. But I happened to turn on a stage and their commentary was so interesting at the beginning of the stage when nothing was really happening other than a lot of dramatic French lower level teams doing drone hopper style attacks, which I <laughs> honestly like I hadn't seen any fake TV attacks in such a long time in a race because racing has become very real from the gun. Now I just thought it was hilarious. So there, there was a lot of drama there and then they were having a really in-depth discussion about the implosion of the UK road racing scene that yes, I, found, I, heard this. I found to be really, really, really interesting. Good. Right. And that's, yeah, it's it's pretty wild. It made definitely made me think about like what's going to happen with Enios and you know, they've just produced so many hitters since the London Olympics to see it all go away and road racing collapse in the United States does kind of make you wonder about whether we're just headed towards gravel. I've been I mean, I've been asking around about this a lot in the UK because yeah, yeah, obviously it goes without saying road racing in the US pretty much all but dead. We could debate all day about what caused that. I would say it's probably as simple as 
people didn't want to pay a bunch of money to go enter a race with like 35 other pro one twos and get dropped in the first mile. And it just isn't that fun if you're not winning. It's also very expensive for promoters to put on the race to secure those courses. Probably started to act out exceed the cost that you would exceed the revenue that you would bring in putting the race on. So it just became financially untenable. Gravel racing, genius idea. I'm going to charge people more money. More people will come and we're not even going to close the road. So our costs are close to zero. I mean, that's that's a great idea. You should do that if you have the means. So that probably did it in the US, but I, I've heard similar things in the UK where it just became very hard to secure roads. I mean, did you see this thing now that time trials in the UK, which is Originally, that was the only racing they could put on. I, I think that's right. why they have such a good time trialing pedigree is because yeah. they could only do time trials. It's the only way they could secure roads. Now they have a 20 mile an hour speed limit on roads right. where it's posted 20 miles an right. hour speed limit during time trials. So definitely it's not in a great place there. I mean, I would love to have Matt Stevens on on this show sometime. I find him to be incredibly interesting. He was, I think he was the original presenter when GCN was a YouTube channel. It was him and one other guy and then he started doing commentary for Eurosport. I believe he he left GCN. I, he might have had equity that he cashed out. I'm not totally sure about that, though. But he left GCN. Like w- When everyone was joining GCN, he left. He went to Eurosport because he's like, I just want to be as good as I can be at commentary. And he really doubled down on becoming yeah. a race commentator. And I, I'd say he's he might be the best. I, he is incredible. Yeah, he's world tour level. He's world tour level. Yeah, I think he could get picked up. But the big thing I about Omloop is uh, that I want to talk about not so much who's going to win it. And I mean, it's like what a what a ridiculous race to predict. You never really know who's going to win Omloop, and whoever yeah. wins Omloop won't win the Tour of Flanders because no one's ever won Omloop and Flanders in the same year. Probably because they're so far apart. You know, how could you be on winning form for both of those? It doesn't make a ton of sense. But we have Wout Van Aert here. I don't know if you've been following Wout as closely as I have the last few weeks, but I would say Wout is fully in, it looks like he's fully in training mode. Like, honestly, it looks like he's training through a lot of these races. For I heard at Algarve, like Remco was there. He was reconning the time trial, which seems a little ridiculous for an Algarve level stage race to be spending resources reconning the time trial, but clearly he is taking his time trialing and stage racing very seriously this this year, probably because he saw the tour last year and thought, oh my God, Jonas Findigo is the best time, time trialist in the world during Grand Tours. I have to be at a very high level. Wild Van Aert looked like he had just gone on his time trial bike for the first time that year. <laughs> he looks like, not he doesn't look out of shape, but he just looks like he's not tapering for any of these races. He's training through everything. All he's trying to do is win Flanders, Roubaix, and then be ready for the Giro. So that's I all. wouldn't ex- expect yeah, too all. much from him this week. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Yeah, he looked like he just had finished an NA beer and got on that time trial bike. <laughs> right? It was, I mean, he was fast. He was faster than I would be. <laughs> he yeah. was pretty, pretty slow. It was actually one of the slowest time trials I've ever seen him do. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. He's going to peak for the... The, uh, the cobbled classics and definitely, I mean, man, after seeing Matthew Vanderpool just do his, his individual time trial performance at the cyclocross world championships, you know, that, that Wout wants this more than ever. It sounds like such like a vacuous hollow thing to say. So I want to talk quickly about Algarve's stage one where we see Danny Martinez absolutely smoke Remco in the first, in that sprint. What did you think about that moment? I think that was stage two. There was a forgotten oh, okay. stage one at Algarve. 
Okay. That was one of the craziest sprints I've ever seen. Um, if you haven't seen it, go back and watch it. This guy came from absolutely nowhere to win. But yeah, stage two, the uphill sprint. I mean, Martinez, because Remco goes and he goes fast. Like he's gotten a right. lot more explosive in the last two or three years. He used to only be able to win solo. He kind of developed the sprint last year. He goes and you're thinking, man, this guy, no one can come around him. He is launching these sprints 30 to 40 seconds from the finish line, which is extreme. That's an extremely long sprint, especially with yeah. people on your wheel. And then Danny Martinez came around him so fast. My, someone sent a text that was like, he looks like he's the only rider who looks like Lance Armstrong one day and Louis Armstrong the next day. I mean, he does seem to go like when you watch that sprint, you think this guy might be one of the best racers in the world. He's incredible, but kind of has had trouble consistently doing that over the years but he looked pretty pretty dang good all week and then you get to the final stage on sunday almost exact replica of that rimco goes even earlier he claimed that he couldn't shift into the little ring but i mean it didn't really seem like a little ring like if you're sprinting at the top of a 2k climb you're going to be in the big ring anyway you don't need hold the on. ring for that hold on mr 62 tooth chain ring is talking about his little ring well yeah we'll get to that in a second yeah, sure. <laughs> 62 no inner chain ring so he said he couldn't shift and that's why he lost but martinez smoked him again um i mean i don't know if i would like say like oh remco is never going to win the tour because he's getting beat by martinez on the on these uphill finishes the thing that i mean it the thing that bothers me the most about it is he doesn't seem the fact that he went too early on stage two, gets beat, and then his decision is, I'll go even earlier on, on the last stage. It's like, well, maybe you should try to stay on Martinez's wheel, let him open up the sprint, come around him. Like that type of stuff where it doesn't really feel like he's learning. You know, if I was going to flag one concern about this race for him, it's that. Another thing is that, okay, maybe you couldn't switch into the small chain ring. Do you really need to say that after you just get beat? dust it really for the second time in in the week by the same rider maybe just say martinez was great i couldn't beat him he was better than me like the fact that he's like kind of searching for these excuses a lot i feel like that's building up a, a bad trend yeah i'm also thinking about when we get deeper in the season and i'm thinking about stage races in which remco is going to be squaring off against you know, a writer that Martinez is writing in support of and not Martinez and Martinez. So if it's like the guy, (laughs) the guy you're racing against is can smoke you and his domestique has totally railed you a couple of times in critical sprint finishes. That's going to be a bit of a psychological blow, I think. Yeah. I mean, I'm now casting my mind back about 12 months. Do you remember this? I forget exactly what stage race it was but it was an early season east season basque basque not basque catalan stage race yeah and he was like screaming at primos because primos kept beating him and then sitting on his wheel yeah, yeah like, totally that is not ice in his veins that is the opposite the, the man is lava in his veins that type of stuff like that's when the when the lights are bright at the tour like that makes the difference if you just cannot keep your cool and you're seemingly bothered by that. And as you say, this is a guy who's going to be a domestique at the tour beating you. And then you're saying, Oh, my inner chain ring isn't working. Like, I don't know about that. And like, what is going on with these bikes? Like how often do you, are you not able to change into a chain ring? Like that's so rare. That would so rarely happen. I feel like to me, and it feels like we're seeing mechanicals at a higher rate than if you and I were just like out riding around at the world tour. Like, are they just kind of pushing the limit of what these gears are supposed to be doing? Are they not setting them up to spec? I guess. 
I think that this is related to the discussion about Remco's 62 tooth chain ring for the time trial, which was there for a different reason than most people reported, I believe. So these things are interrelated. So yeah, let's talk about this. So I'll All just right, let's set talk the about it, Spencer. 60, set the stage. The time trial comes around. I assume he's going to use this at the tour and he's testing it through these early stage races. And that's why he was taking this so seriously. He has a 62 front chain ring, no yeah. small ring. If you don't know, 62 is really big. Like yeah. a big chain ring used to be 53 teeth. You'd see guys go up to 50. Like I remember Jared, Jared Chalik would sprint on a 55 and that was like mind blowing. And then someone's got a 58 for a time trial. No way. Up to 60. That's impossible. So he's, he's got a 62. People have never even heard of chain rings this big. No little ring. So you're stuck in that big ring. He is not all, I think is 1134 on the back. So the big question I'm sure they had was, can he get up and over the climbs in this course? It looked like he was spinning just fine. Uh, so I guess the, that answers the question. Yes, he can. My question for you is why, why the 62 to why such a big chain ring on the front? So th the reporting that I saw was speculating that he needed it so he wouldn't get spun out on the downhills. And that's not why he was using the 62 tooth chain ring. We saw a trend towards much larger chain rings around the time that more pro teams started riding SRAM gear. Specifically, they were stuck with that 10 tooth small cog. You're much more efficient mechanically when you're not cross chain, number one. And number two, when you're not using small cogs and back because there's, there's much greater chain wrap than you have with larger cogs and you lose a lot of wattage actually. So I went and dug around and Velo News actually had testing done by ceramic speed and a 48 by 10, which is equivalent to a 53 by 11 is six watts faster. Or I'm sorry, the 53 by 11 is six watts faster than a 48 by 10 just because yeah, of the yeah. increase, increased friction. And similar to wind resistance, drivetrain friction increases progressively with input power. So the more power you're putting out, the more watts you're losing when you have extra chain wrap around something like 10 tooth cog. Now Remco is on Shimano gear and he still wants to stay in the center of his cassette range. So the straighter the chain line and the larger the back cog he can use, the less mechanical watt loss, wattage loss he'll have. So that's why he's using the gigantic chain ring. It's not because he somehow can put out more power than other people or because he wants to pedal it, you know, like a 35 cadence when he's time traveling. <laughs> so, and this is the same reason we saw Camp and Eretz using the gigantic chain ring. It was reported at the time that he was using it because he was going to do like a secret downhill attack. That's not why. It's because he's gaining six watts relative to people on smaller gear setups. It's interesting. And I definitely buy it. The, the 10 tooth is if you look at it it's so much wrap i get significantly more wrap than even a 12 you know it's almost like it increases exponentially the lower and lower on the cassette you get it so i can understand wanting to avoid that my question is okay you want a straight line isn't 6234 like you're you're having to go so far back to get up climbs isn't that taking you out of the straight line more than if you had a small chain ring 
and you were more even when you're go- going up climbs? We're going to have to get ceramic speed on to answer that question. I can't <laughs> answer that question, Spencer. You know what? As it relates to this alleged inability to shift into the small ring on Remco's road bike, I would speculate. I mean, I haven't seen a photo of the bike he was using that day. My guess is he was maybe running a 54 or a 55 tooth chain ring for the same reason. And we saw this with SRAM sponsored riders two or three years ago. They were riding gigantic front chain rings like the Trek, whatever Trek was called at the time, Trek, Trek Segafredo, I think was the name of the team two or three years ago. But they showed up in in Australia at the season opener and they were all running like 54 or 55 tooth chain rings. And the secret was like, well, they weren't using their their uh, ten tooth cog, so they were they were running these giant front chain rings and then a much larger yeah, yeah. range rear cassette. That's kind of funny that you come out with this innovation and then teams are actively working a ways ra- a way like to not have to use the innovation that you made. Pretty humorous. Sorry, Shram, you tried. But what is, I guess. My, wait, what? Why I lost what I was going to say. Oh my God. Well, let me say something else then while you're thinking. Okay. I also wanted to say SRAM has gone out and done their own testing. And I want you to hold on to your hats if you're wearing one. SRAM has, <laughs> has some marketing science that says that their 10 tooth cog is actually just as efficient as whatever the Shimano equivalent is. You can decide what to, you can decide what to believe. <laughs> and who came out with it? And whose yeah. research is this? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say I don't know if you've noticed this, but I'm going. So I'm I'm going on the ground to research this at a time at a world tour time trial. But these cranks are getting they're shrinking. Cranks are shrinking. No yeah. one's talking about it. Tom I've Peacock said I've got the he's answer. Going to like 160 on his time trial cranks. Yeah, that would have been, you know, as recently as five years ago, people thought the longer the crank the more leverage you're getting. And that actually doesn't yeah. make a ton of sense if you really think about it. But people for 50 years thought this. So they were going as long of cranks as they could without scraping the ground because they thought they needed leverage. Right. What they're finding is the more you shorten the crank, your your cadence just speeds up. I mean, if you look at, I looked at Remco's Strava file for the last hour of his attack at that race in Portugal, Figora, the one-day race, he averaged right. 99 RPMs for the last hour of the race when he was away solo. I mean, that is... That is a high cadence. And what what that is allowing him to do is push very, very, very high power numbers without just like shredding his body to nothing. You know, because when I, I ride with like an, a low cadence, I shouldn't. It's a bad habit I have. But it's like you cheat. You go down to this low cadence and I can just like grind out a power. And I'm I'm not stressing my aerobic system as much. But what's happening is I'm just I'm just ripping my muscles to shreds. And I can't, I could not sustain that for like three climbs in one race. Yeah, it also allows you to do two other things. So the reason that triathletes have been doing this forever, and you're right, it's taking off in road racing. I'm also hearing that cross-country mountain bike racers are doing this. I'm not quite sure why they're doing it. I'm going to need to talk to some people who are doing World Cup racing to find out. On the triathlon side, they started doing this because it's easier to get a better hip angle. So the angle between, between your hip and your torso it's just mechanically easier on your body to achieve when you have shorter cranks, number one. So you can have reduced frontal area as a consequence of doing that, and it's more comfortable. So that's the first advantage. And then the second advantage that I think is more pertinent to what we're seeing in world tour racing 
is generally you can size down your frame. So it's easier to size down your frame. And as we see with world tour riders, I mean, they're just running, they're all running like 140, 150 stems. Don't try this at home. Your bike's, it's not going to be quite as stable on descents, but somehow it works for them. Yeah. Yeah. But in, in short, you're not, your legs are not hitting your stomach when you're in an aerodynamic position. Yeah. You're getting your knees down. You can size down your bike, which is a lighter, gives you a lighter bike. Exactly. Yeah. I, there's also, I guess, if you're in a road race, or maybe if you're in a time trial, I guess this would help too. You can pedal through corners a lot easier. Like in, same yeah. guy, Kevin Soker. This is the Kevin Soker show. He would run 165s and crits and pedal through the corners. And he, he claimed that it helped him sprint at a higher cadence. He was probably right. He was like 10 years ahead of, ahead of the curve. But everyone thought, oh, you're giving up so much leverage though. But you know, if you're racing crits, you should be, you should just be shrinking those cranks as much as possible because then you can pedal through corners. I assume on mountain bikes, it's because you can pedal over rocks and stuff like that, right? Yeah, you, you know what? Maybe, or maybe they're using, they're, maybe they're riding with a higher cadence style when climbing because it's, it's more efficient. I don't know. I'm going to have to talk to an exercise physiologist about that one. Fascinating sure. stuff. Yeah, I do like do have to ask you another equipment related question. So we've gone through, I guess the past two years have been the era of the extreme canted brifters. It's hard to believe it's gonna be regarded, I think, similar to I think there was one season at what was then the world tour level in the mid nineties when Spinacci were legal. Yeah. So yeah. so this was like clip on arrow bars, but they didn't have have forearm rests, but those were actually used at the Tour de France and the Giro for one one year. Like it's really hard to find photos of them because it was around, you know, early dial-up internet time. And now, like we've we've hit another anomalous era in in professional cycling where that stuff has been banned. We're back to the more conventional. They can only be canted ten degrees. The question that I have, because the UCI is the organization that came out with the study claiming that it's dangerous because it leverages bars in such a way that they would break. My question is, particularly here in the litigation-prone United States, home of the class action lawsuit, <laughs> why, why have we not heard anything from any manufacturer telling us not to run our brifters canted in? Like I've seen nothing anywhere telling consumers not to do this. It must be like when you buy, let's say, buy a specialized bike. Right. It must be something in that transaction where they're absolving themselves of legal liability. Like, what if I go out and ride off a mountain? I don't think I get my, my family can't sue specialized. They must have some sort of protection once you own the bike that. But then why do we have why do we have the lawyer tabs? You know, well, I mean, when you yeah, take the yeah. wheel off. Yeah. And now I'm wondering about this. Yeah, never say never. Think about all the recalls they have. I also, I, I saw a YouTuber recently talking about a component manufacturer who I'm not going to name, but talking about how they're basically, the hypothesis of this YouTuber was that it's one of the two major component manufacturers, but they were hypothesizing that more or less they're using beta testing in mass they're releasing equipment that they know is going to fail in order to rapid prototype towards better solutions because it's more financially efficient to release it into the market, have this stuff fail, recall it, and build new stuff than to build stuff that is perhaps safer. That seems yeah. like a that seems like a, a very spurious argument to me. 
But think about how many massive recalls there have been from both Shimano and SRAM in, in the past 24 months. Shimano had their crank recall of, I'm, it's like the last 20 years of. Yeah. Anyone you know with the I, Shimano crank, basically. Yeah. 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 So it was that. And then SRAM has recalled, I think, most of the road brifters that they've they've ever built. <laughs> it's, something, it's just like, it's kind of bananas. It's stuff that people are using every day. And I, what you described sounds to me like SRAM, but we won't, I don't know that. I'm just guessing that <laughs> that, that strategy sounds a lot like something that would happen to SRAM. We need to talk about the Alpacin, I guess they're Alpacin, Decon- oh my God, Deconic? They've changed their name, so I'm going to cut this out. Alpacin, we, we follow ProCycling, we know what we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. The Alpacin Deconic kits this this is it's times a flat circle. They came out with full denim kits. This is Carrera jeans, the the yeah. team from the nineties. It's it's happening all over again. Yeah. I, I think it's a little crazy they did this, but it's also the craziest thing to me is this basically they look exactly like Sudol Quickstep. How why is the UCI letting teams just release jerseys that are almost identical to each other? You can't tell who anyone is in these Pelotons. This is my old man take yelling at a cloud. Yeah, I don't think the UCI has a dog in the hunt here because they don't have a way to make money off of this. So I, I don't think anybody can like take an under the table payoff related to, uh, to what <laughs> what a team's uniforms look like. So I, I don't think they really care. It does make it harder to differentiate riders, and it's not the most elegant denim execution I've seen in professional cycling. That would be Carrera. But. Oh yeah, I mean it's. Right. It's it's not even worth the conversation, but yeah, it's nice to see the full denims coming back. I mean, I want someone to start gaming this. Like, you wait until, let's say, Visma releases their jersey in December, then you start working on your jersey, copy it as close as you can, and then you're confusing them at the tour. They're like, "Would we have a rider in the breakaway? What's happening? We don't know who anyone right. is." Just try to like mimic other teams, so no one know the chameleon strategy. No one even knows who is who, and you can take advantage of that. Yeah, this is reminding me of when I was watching the Maritime Alps race. Because it had second-tier teams, I don't know what they're called, whatever's below world tour teams, they had a lot of French lower-level professional teams. But a lot of that like drone hopper vibe, there was a team there on Coratech bikes. I don't know if you saw the race at all, Spencer, but just some like real, reminded me of like the Cipollini bikes of years oh past. yeah yeah but these like really really gauche loud core tech bikes that were quite interesting a lot of brands that you just don't see here in the united states it's kind of fun as a fan of gear to see some of the things on the road over there it's kind of funny throwing these french races on because they're pretty high level races and you throw them on and it's like i don't know who a lot of these teams are and it's, yeah. is this equipment from like 15 years ago what's happened and you'd see this at, at the portuguese races where like the cat-like helmet. Have you seen, I haven't seen that cat-like helmet in 10 years. Oh, I even think it was yeah, still totally. legal. And all the Portuguese teams have it. And right. I guess it it's a reminder of how, like we think of pro cycling being everything so forward, so tech forward. You know, they're racing yeah. stuff that we're going to be riding in five years. And then you drop down two levels and it's like, you'd see flappy jerseys. It was just fascinating to see how these local teams are operating almost in the past versus these world tour teams yeah i don't normally side with the uci on this i would like to see the ear flap on road helmets banned. i don't like it 
Especially. Yeah, they need. Yeah, I don't like that at all. The, the whole time trial thing looks. It looks ridiculous. Like I, like when Remco's up there, he looks like he's with these specialized helmets. They look like they're in space balls. Like it's literally yeah. comes out to the end of their shoulders. I guess that's the idea. Then you, you basically eliminate your shoulders as a aerodynamic liability because the helmet is pushing the air around it. But They've got to lock that down. Also, Adam Yates today at UAE Tour crashed so hard on his head. His head basically stopped him from traveling at high speeds. And that is why we have modern helmets that are very big. You see these big helmets, you're like, man, I look like right. a goofball. Why can't I have the old tiny helmet? That's why you have big helmets, because <laughs> he probably would be dead if he didn't have a quality helmet on. Helmets are important. Don't leave home without one. Yeah, don't. Yeah, I want the like the Italian. Remember the that's just like leather that you strap yeah. to your head. Yeah, give me that. And, yeah. and then we got to get to the most important. We saved the best for last. Yeah, the, we got to get to this topic. Uh, Patrick Lefevre, Julian Alaphilippe. They've been things have been bubbling for a while. Lefevre owns or not owns. He's a minority owner of the Quick Step team. He is the principal. He's always kind of needling Julian Alaphilippe in the press, even when Alaphilippe was winning world championships but no longer winning for the trade team like he kind of had this odd run where he would win he would win like two races in a year and one of them would be the world championships lefevre was already pre-complaining that like well he's not racing for my team when he wins the world so i don't see what all the fuss is about despite him winning back-to-back world championships the headline of his latest interview about al philippe is this is on cycling news too much partying too much alcohol lefevre issues further julian alaphilippe criticism he seems to suggest in this interview and i heard if you actually read the interview i think it's a flemish language interview it's a little bit more in context and subdued but basically like the aggregated news would suggest like seems to suggest that lefevre sat down and said julian's a good guy but as soon as he got his mega contract he started drinking all the time and all he wants to do is hang out with his wife and not race his bike well. Yeah. <laughs> and like accuses him of alcohol abuse. Pretty right. intense criticism. I don't fully understand if the chessboard here. Like, what's your take on this? Like, why why is Lefevre doing this? Yeah, this is tough. Patrick Lefevre seems seems to be a uh a pretty terrible misogynist is part of my takeaway here. Uh, some of the things that he says here, like let's set aside the alcohol piece of it, but he's basically saying that Alaphilippe's partner, Marion Roos, who's the Tour de France Femmes director, is at fault here. He's seriously under the influence of Marion Roos, maybe too much. Like, what, what, what does that mean, number one? And then he goes on to say, Julian is a young dog full of energy. <laughs> <laughs> you have to let him cro- cross the yard once in a while. And you also have to say up to here and no further, there is still a bad boy inside him. This is just a, a bizarre series of statements from Lefebvre. And I also was digging into this a little bit. It's been reported elsewhere. So in December of 2023, Alaphilippe's cousin, Frank Alaphilippe, was let go by Sudol Quickstep after four years. So Frank Alaphilippe was his cousin and was his coach. And so there's something weird going on there. This this just like kind of reeks of strange Sagan stuff to me. Things are like jammed up with weird stuff going on with his cousins involved. 
his goatee personally I find to be suspicious and also Sagan like. <laughs> and and now he's like the thing I'd be more concerned about if I were Lefebvre, the TikTok stuff. Let's like just <laughs> It'd be fine with me if Alaphilippe just won some more bike races. I don't need to see this guy TikToking. You know? <laughs> like, I know I sound like an old man, but just ride your goddamn bike. I don't need to see you TikTok. I do think it's I do think this is contributing to the frustration because obviously I think it goes without saying, kind of it's pretty out of line from Lefebvre. Like it doesn't matter how frustrated you are with an employee, you probably shouldn't publicly criticize them in this way especially saying he's under the influences of his wife. I'm not even sure what that means. I mean, this is a classic coach complaint, though. Like in high school, this is the coach. Hey, your girlfriend's a bad influence. I don't want her hanging around. And you'd see this like Manchester United where David Beckham yeah. married Posh Spice, I think. Yeah, Posh Spice right. and then Ferguson. Like, their relationship was never the same. It kind of yeah. ruined their relationship. And he, yeah. he kicked him off the team, basically, because of it. But yeah. this is... He has not been producing for for Sudal Quickstep for quite some time, and I and he is getting paid quite a bit of money, and Lefebvre has to watch that money go out of the account every month. So I'm sure there's a lot of pent up energy, and then you're watching him on TikTok dancing to Celine Dion. It's like, what? Come on, what's the, man. What's the context there? That's the thing that bothered me about that. Like, well, what? Why not? Like Taylor Swift? I don't understand. She's not even French. She's a Canadian singer. Who is she particularly topical at the moment that I missed something? I was confused by that. But yeah, I bet there is a bit of frustration there that it just seems like he's not focused on winning races and he's he is getting, I know it's harsh to say, but he's getting paid a lot of money to win races for the team. And I'm sure there's a ton of frustration within the team because of that. Yeah. The thing that's not mentioned in this coverage also is that Al Philippe was very close with his father and his father died like he died last yeah i believe he it died like last year two years yeah, ago maybe yeah so he died within the last two seasons and that's a that's a very intense for any human being to experience and for him in particular i feel like he hasn't talked to the press about it a lot and yes he's a professional athlete getting paid a lot of money i do wonder if there are some things going on here from a mental health point of view that maybe like a bit more Brene Brown or Coach Popovich approach versus calling this guy a drunk and I have <laughs> a press yeah. story, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like the ethics of it are are murky at best. Yeah. His he's grieving from the early passing of his father. And uh, it, I do feel like it is he's been a bit more erratic in races since that happened. He just kind of you, you notice this like like for the lack of a better word, kind of spaz out at points. And then he, like he'll just look around incessantly all day and you're like, Oh, I know the crash is coming. There's going to be a crash in 10 K and then I'll flip will crash. Like it doesn't seem like he's had his head in the game as much, which is understandable. That's a pretty traumatic thing to go through, but it is like, I don't understand why these cycling, I don't understand a, why he's on the team this year. I thought he was going to leave the team even with a year left on his contract. It just seems like why is quick step one and around? They should have gone to another team and said, pay half of his salary for next year. And you have them. But I mean, maybe maybe Lefebvre thinks that there's still winning left in him and it's worth it to keep him on the team, motivate him by doing this, I guess, is why he's doing it. And then he's going to win Flanders because this is kind of what Lefebvre does. You know, he yeah. beats people down in the press and then they perform pretty well. That's that's the part that I feel like people miss here. Like 
he absolutely drags riders. I think he was pretty rough on Gilbert yeah. and Cavendish. And then they had some of the best years of their careers after that. Yeah. Maybe that's what he's banking on. But I thought he would leave the team at the end of the year. Kind of what that would suggest, the fact that he didn't. And the fact that they fired his brother, I thought, oh, this is the brother's gone. Al Philippe's going to go to Total Energies. Total signs the brother. That's what's at play here. Yeah. No, he came back for the final year of his contract. So I guess Lefebvre doesn't have anything to gain by it. But same thing with Caleb Ewan at Lotto. Like, I don't understand the Popovich move, as, as you say, would be privately you say, I'm never going to race you in a race of any importance. You're never going to see the tour again. You're out of here, buddy. Or like, go find a new team because you're not racing for us anymore. Publicly, you come out and say, Julian is going to have the best season of his life. I've never, I've never seen him this focused. This guy could win the tour next year. You know, we don't even know if we're going to take Remco to the tour because Julian might be our leader. You know, you kind of pump their value up with your public statements, privately tell them we need to get rid of you because this is not working out. And then you, you can move them and, and you don't destroy the value of the asset in the process. That's, but I guess he's in the final year of his contract and the favorite figures, well, I'm not going to get anything for him anyway. So I might as well just say he's a drunk and see if he wins a race to get back at me for doing that, which I guess is the strategy here. Yeah. And we, I mean, we have no line of sight into what's happened offline and maybe Lefebvre had a very compassionate and direct conversation with Al Philippe that we're not privy to. I think that's probably the thing that a good leader would do before resorting to what we're seeing now. And also it is part of the game of being a professional athlete. Sometimes things between management and labor get litigated in the press and it's a, a lever typically of last resort and it can be an effective one. I, I just wanted to point out one more thing about Al Philippe's trajectory here in the last couple of years. You know, something that is very rarely talked about in professional cycling is traumatic brain injury. And if you look back at the last three years, Al Philippe has had some absolutely horrific crashes. So it was the Tour of Flanders in 2020. He rode into that moto at Strada Bianche in 2022. He had an extremely heavy crash. And then Tour 2023, Philippe went down extremely hard. So every time these guys are going down the way he went down in those crashes, whether it's being disclosed publicly or not, you have to wonder if there's some element of concussion or TBI and you know, over the course of a career, you do that 10, 20 times, you know, things are not going to be going, you're not going to be firing optimally in the years following those crashes. And it also has to diminish your confidence in addition to its impact on your cognitive health, I would think. I mean, he, he has had, yeah, as you say, some pretty, it's almost like there's a, a clock ticking every eight months for him to have a bad crash. I guess physically too, that just even taking out long-term effects of the crash, that just disrupts your training. You know, he probably feels, I bet Aleph Fleet feels like this is unfair because I've been sick or, and I've been injured from crashing. I haven't had a clean runway to put together a good season. The shocking thing about it is you'd say, oh, the guy's washed. He's only 31. And yeah, you bring up, he was in the front group of the, of Tour of Flanders. And was that, that was late 2020. That wasn't that long ago. You know, yeah. And then won a world championship after that, won a world championship 2021. And then, just really not been the same rider. I mean, yeah, they can like, I'm sure he's had concussions that can't help. I mean, you do see this, like, I don't know if you remember this guy, Roland green. I think that oh, was yeah. his name. Yep. Great rider. Great, great rider. Crashed hard tour of Georgia, hit his head hard. And then something about that injury, he just never could push the same Watts 
even after he was physically healthy, there was just something in his brain changed with that head injury and he could never quite ride as well. Yeah, I think that it's got to diminish your aggression. Thinking about Tour of Georgia, Craig Lewis riding into a car that came onto the course while he was heads down on his time trial bike. You know, he had a world-class engine. He had a good career. And also that certainly impacted, I think, his ability to be as aggressive as needed to position in races and to do well in Europe. So I think once something like that happens, you know, watching it on TV and thinking, wow, that looked bad. That guy just, in the case of Al Philippe, I'm thinking about the wreck where they look like they're going about 40 miles an hour and then he flew off the highway into a pylon that you're not going to forget that one. (laughs) You know what I mean? I don't, you're not going to, I don't think you're going to like shoot the gap the next time you have the chance the way you would have prior to that wreck. And that's part of why they talk, you know, pro writers talk all the time. Now, Garen Thomas talks about this, like the lack of respect, the level of aggression among these 18 to 21 year olds who are coming in and absolutely dominating the sport. Like they're not afraid of anything. They haven't been through this stuff yet. They haven't hit their head on the ground at 50 miles an hour, 20 times. And they do things a little bit differently. And then it changes once they do. Yeah. And there, I mean, we could talk all day about that, but there is, I I do think some of that's like old man syndrome and some of it, I think the culture in cycling used to be like, nah, like don't take big risks because it used to be a lot of like, you get a lot of rope, you know, you wouldn't have to get a result for years. And if you were just a good guy and you fit in the team, you could keep getting your contract renewed. Not the same anymore. You got to get results if you want to stay on the team. Here's my hot, hot take about this. Okay. The weird thing is Alaphilippe riding pretty well this year. He looked pretty good at the Tour Down Under, and I'm sure he was not peaking for that race. He has Amalouf coming up this Saturday, Strada Bianchi, Milano San Remo, Tour of Flanders, sure to tell you. I, I think he's going to have a good spring. And I kind of wonder if Lefebvre is doing this so then he can say, like, look, see, like, I motivated him. He did, yeah, <laughs> like, right. almost yeah. take the credit for his performance because I I don't know. I was looking back now. I was actually kind of surprised at how good he was at Tour Down Under, assuming that he wasn't in tip tip top shape for it. Yeah. So I wouldn't. I wouldn't totally close the book on him having a, a secretly good spring. He's not that old. You know, he's a very very quality rider at the same time. Yeah. Maybe Lefevre will take Remco's dad out to dinner to talk about Al Philippe's contract. We'll see. <laughs> that, was, that was a bizarre situation in retrospect. Oh my. Who who's your pick for this weekend? Who's going to win envelope? Oh man, I got to look at the start list, Spencer. Who's your pick? Just say a name. You know, you got to go with an oddball. Like it's always an odd. It's usually an oddball. And I and I bet he's on teamwork duty and he will not win. But Matteo Jorgensen, that's who I want to win. Okay, I think it's going to be someone on Visma who's not Wout Van Aert or Christoph Laporte. That would be I'm my going, guess. Yeah, I'm going with T. Spinute. Yeah, that's a good one too. He gets yeah. away solo. They kind of clog the race up. No one, yeah. no one can chase him down. They really do like to do that. Like, let's, I mean, everybody on their team is, is at another level, but I feel like they like to do the, like, let's throw a bone to the guy that's going to have to do the thing later yep. so that I can do the thing. And we've seen that in past editions. So that could be the case this time. I'm just cruising through to look for, you know, who else have we got here? I want to look at Intermarche Wanti. Have they got anybody that's got a wing and a prayer chance? They've been I'm, 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 I'm going to go with Dries DePooter. Dries DePooter, like. lock it yeah. in. Dries he's DePooter, got it. He's got, he's got a puncher's chance. Why not? 
I do feel like Amalu, a lot of the like Tour of Flanders, like you will not see an under, underdog there the way the course is. It's just not going to happen. Amalu's one of the remaining classics where you, I think you could get a total, total wild card winning this thing. Yeah, we'll see. Like Alexi Lutsenko would not be shocked. But it, I'm, I'm curious. The thing that I'm most curious to see is like Visma. Like, are they, have they just taken it up a level from last year? You know, because that, yeah. that could spell trouble for the rest of the sport. But at the same time, they were so dominant through these early classics last year and then, you know, kind of uh, pooped the bed a little bit at Flanders and Roubaix. So maybe they uh, need to take it slower into it this year. Spencer, are you surprised to see? I believe he is 40 years old. I believe 40-year-old Cameron Wirth is on the Enios roster for Omloop. Well, <laughs> we I, I would love to like unleash on Enios and see like this is this is a sign of Enios decline. Like the, the day at UA Tour, they were pacing on the final climb. It's like you guys do not have a GC leader here. You should not be pacing. What are you doing? Attack to try to win the race. But I actually like. I think this is really clever from them because I think what yeah. Cam does for the team, yeah. they have him there just to pull on the yeah, early yeah. pave sections. Absolutely. Like he never, he's, yeah. he's like after hundred K, like he's out of the race, like get in the yeah. car, go home. And I kind of think more teams should do this. Like I saw that Visma signed a guy, he was like a 35 year old Kermess rider and they signed him, I assume yeah. for the same role as Cameron Wolf. You would think, oh, it's the most successful team in the sport. Everyone on the race should be a world-class rider who could win any race, but it's like, no, you actually should build your team in a module fashion and like have a guy who just works on the part of the race you'll never see on TV. And then he goes home. So I came actually, it's kind of an interesting strategy to have him there that, that I, that I like. And I think more teams should, should copy because what makes you good at polling for those early stages doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, you're, you would be able to do that if you were a good race winner. You know, I tend to think UAE doesn't have enough big boys. I think they tend to get a lot of really talented, sure. smaller riders who can win a lot. And then you saw, I think it was like, I don't know, I'm going to say stage 12 of the tour last year, the one that finished at Grand Colombier, where they just physically didn't have the size and have to pull back Diafkoski. He just could stay away. Where it's like, you need the big boys sometimes whose only job is to sit on the front pole. So it, it's an interesting reason they have them that I think more teams should do. All right. I'm, I want to apologize to Cam Worf for saying something that sounds like I'm disparaging him. He has, like, he, the role that he plays in these classics and demi-classics is exactly that. He is excellent at it. And something that I like about Cam being in this race is, number one, if you need to borrow a Princeton Carbon Works wheel and you're a couple of countries <laughs> over, this guy has got you in a pinch, as Matthew Vanderpool knows, Number doesn't matter two, what team you're on. Doesn't matter. It like, yeah, he's uh, equal opportunity with wheel lending. The other thing I like about it is I'm imagining like people, some like masters, like Cat Three rider out on the donut ride going towards Palos Verdes this Sunday in SoCal, thinking like I could be out there. You know what? Like <laughs> I, I think I could do 350 watts for like two hours. Like I, I think I've got a chance. They're going to give a call next year. I've got um, it. Yeah, the last thing I wanted to say about Omloop is I'm looking through the roster. I'm looking at the Bingo WB. I don't know what the WB stands for. I'm noticing that their logo looks like the Skull Chewing Tobacco logo. It's quite interesting what they're doing with their with their team kit this year. <laughs> they, that should be the sponsor. <laughs> it should be. Actually, this is teams they deal that does look a lot like that. 
it's the thing that blows my mind about these teams. Like this is this is a small team, not a big team, and they have riders on there. Like I bet you could pick one of those riders, and they would could be able to compete for the U.S. national championship. And it would be like a rider you've never heard of. Like right. the depth of talent in Belgium is so deep that you can have not yeah. only the top teams like Sudal Quickstep, Alpesen, Intermarche. It's like no, we got second, third, fourth division teams that have like world class classics riders on them. What if Bingle just shipped their whole squad to Unbound this year? Oh, that would be awesome. I, it, that is super interesting. Or like Team Flanders, Bailey's, like pretty. I'm sure they're well known in Flanders. They're probably not that well known out out of it. Like an American's never going to know about this. Know about this team? If they did that, that would probably drive more publicity for them than any result they're going to get in Europe. Because realistically, they're not going to win Flanders or Roubaix. And that would be the only thing that could rival that, probably. Yeah, and they get five million hours of YouTube oh, coverage, dude. Like, yeah, I think yeah. like front I'm, page of Velo for for six months. Yeah, like Lars Craps, one of their one of the writers on the roster for Omloop, he could win it. it it's pretty interesting. I, I bet he. I, I bet think he could. I bet he could come off the bench could. with this team and win. Yeah, man, we should reach out to them. That's that's a good idea. Hmm. All right. I mean, maybe we're being disrespectful. We might have to cut this out. Is this disrespectful? No, I don't think so. Like, I don't. You know, you got to think about like, can Mate Mahora show up and single-handedly defeat Team Flanders, Bowaz? I don't think so. It would be tough. It would be tough. There's a full team. Yeah, I don't think so. All right. Strength strength in numbers. I like it. All right. Well, we'll let you go, Andrew. We'll let the listeners take off, but we will. Got a, got a good block of racing coming up. So we'll try to be back, on a, get back on our weekly basis schedule. Let's do it. All right. Talk to you later. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me.